We have an anchor that keeps the soul steady. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. We are looking in our lesson today, particularly at this hour, in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be talking about the power of the gospel of Christ. And John chapter 16 really sets the stage for what we're talking about. The Lord Jesus is engaged in a very intimate conversation with the apostles. He has instructed them about His departure, and He has promised them that upon His departure, that they would be the recipients of the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would teach them all things and bring all things to their remembrance. In chapter 16, Jesus again pointed out that it was to their advantage or it was expedient that He go away. He said, if I do not go away, the Helper, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I'll send Him to you. And when He comes, He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. You remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had asked the apostles on one occasion about His identity, and they offered up a number of possibilities. Some were saying that the Lord Jesus was John the Baptist. Some, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked a very pointed question. He wanted to know what they thought about His identity. And Peter spoke up and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was, on, it was based upon that good confession that Jesus was who He claimed to be, the Son of God, that He affirmed that He would build the church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And then down in verse 19, Jesus promised Peter and the apostles that they would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so all of this coincides with the promise made by Jesus prior to His departure, as announced in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, and really you could include chapters 13 and 17 in that same context. And so Pentecost Day comes, and we have the gospel being preached for the very first time in all of its fullness. Now the Bible tells us that the apostles were endowed with that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. And Luke said in verse 4 that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or as the Spirit directed them. Words were used whereby they might come to understand something about the gospel system and God's redemptive plan. Up until this point in time, everything is pointing toward Pentecost. The reason being because on Pentecost Day, the church will have its beginning. All the great prophets of old had foretold of the coming of the church. And not just the church, but also of the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The church and Christ. And they're, well, really, the church and the Christ, they go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. The church is the house of the saved. And so, on Pentecost Day, Peter and the apostles, they preached the gospel in its fullness for the very first time. And you remember beginning in about verse 22, 
that Peter talks about by way of narrative the death of Christ, how they had put to death the Son of God with lawless hands. He'd been crucified among them. Not only was Jesus put to death, but Peter said he was raised from the dead three days later. And then Peter goes on to say that the Christ has now ascended to heaven where he has been seated at the right hand of the Father. It is at the right hand of the Father that Jesus now welds all authority. And you remember prior to the giving of the Great Commission, he said, All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And God the Father during his ministry said of the Christ, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting upon, he occupies a spiritual throne. It is the throne of David. David, of course, wanted to build God a temple. So back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you remember God told him about the Christ to come, who would build an eternal kingdom. That's the church. And so in Acts chapter 2, we have the apostle Peter and the other apostles presenting the gospel. They're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ. That He is now ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of Almighty God. And so down in verse 36, Luke said that Peter, in his presentation of divine truth, said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. God had placed His divine stamp of approval on the work of the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And so when He said that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, He was saying that Jesus is to be the one who rules and reigns in the hearts and lives of people. He is to be the one who occupies that spiritual throne in the heart. But also He is the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Anointed One the one of whom the prophets of old foretold of many, many times, some 300 or so prophecies scattered throughout the Old Testament. And so in light of that, you remember the Bible says that when they heard this, that is when they heard that presentation of the gospel, they were cut to the heart or they were pricked in the heart, as some translations say. What was it that the Lord said about the Holy Spirit coming and guiding them into all truth? You remember what He said back in John chapter 16? Jesus said He will convict the world of sin. So number one, we have the convicting power of the gospel. The Word of God has the ability to convict the hearts and lives of people. The Hebrew writer said over in Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 12 that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You remember Jeremiah the prophet, often called the weeping prophet back in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah, on behalf of God, said, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord. He said it's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. What Jeremiah was saying is there is tremendous power in the Word of God. It has the ability to pierce the heart, to cut the heart, to literally crush the hearts of people. 
So on Pentecost Day, what happened? They heard the gospel. And they realized that they had been guilty of the death of God's only begotten Son. And so they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, that leads to a second thought. First, we talk about the convicting power of the gospel of Christ, but then the converting power of the gospel of Christ. I want to ask you a question. Is not what they asked in the first century one of the more profound questions that could be raised? They were indicted in sin. The Bible tells us that all have been indicted in sin. Listen to what Paul said, Romans chapter 3, There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The prophet Ezekiel in the long ago in Ezekiel chapter 18 would say the soul that sins shall surely die. Now we know that babies are not born as sinners per se. That's what some teach, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Sin is the transgression of the law, according to 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. So Paul is saying, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. These people were in sin. And they wanted to know, what do we need to do to remedy our sinful situation? That's not only a profound question, but it is a powerful question. And I would add to that, it is a provocative question. You see, the gospel is provocative. In other words, it evokes a response, doesn't it? When we hear that message, we make a decision in life. No decision is a decision. But when we hear the gospel of Christ, there is motivation to do what the Bible says. So they want to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? It is a profound question, a powerful question, a provocative question, and I would add this, it is a personal question. At some point in time in life, every one of us has to grapple with the problem of sin, don't we? We've got to come to the realization that we need the Lord. Sometimes individuals have this idea that they're not good enough to become a follower of Jesus. Look, if you were good enough, you wouldn't need the Lord. The church is like a hospital. It's for sick people. And Jesus, as was said in the prayer earlier today, Jesus is the great physician. And only through the healing, cleansing power of the blood of Jesus can people remedy that sin problem. Do you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they were beaten, imprisoned, their feet were fastened in stocks, at midnight, they're singing and praying to Almighty God. An earthquake occurs. The jailer that had been entrusted with their care thought that they had escaped. And so, he's going to take his life because it would be his life for their lives. And yet, Paul said, do yourself no harm. We're all here. The Bible tells us that man asked this question, what must I do to be saved? The realization that there is a need on the part of every one of us in the human family. I know that we live in a day and time when the whole idea of sin and unrighteousness, that that's been lost on the minds of a lot of people. But listen, 
it's still a reality whether we accept it or not. Sin is the problem. If you want to know something about sin and the power of sin, just look around in the world. You want to see the effects of sin, cause and effect? The problems that we're having today are a direct result of the work of the devil and sin. That's it. It's called the prince of this world, and the world has her prince, the devil. So number one, the gospel of Christ. It has convicting power. It has converting power. Number three, it has cleansing power. When those people assembled in Jerusalem on that day, when they asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter didn't hedge, didn't beat around the bush. Matter of fact, he didn't say what a lot of people say in the religious world today. Sometimes it's not what's said, it's what's not said. So what did Peter say on Pentecost Day? The record tells us what he said. And you remember, Jesus promised the apostles back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, that they would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, keys signify authority. The apostles were vested with authority. Matter of fact, in Acts 2, verse 42, the Bible talks about the apostles' doctrine. That doctrine did not originate with them, but rather it originated from Almighty God, the Holy Spirit was the revealing cause of salvation. So in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus told the apostles they would receive the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These people want to know, what shall we do? What do we need to do about our sin problem? Peter did not say, all right, everybody bow your head and repeat this prayer. It's called the sinner's prayer. Do you read that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38? I don't. Do you read anywhere in the New Testament where God in heaven has authorized the sinner's prayer? So it's not authorized by God. If it wasn't a part of the apostles' doctrine, then why do we preach it? That is, why does the religious world preach it and teach it? And why do people accept it? It's not what the Bible says. No, the Bible says these people, they believed in Christ. They had seen the miracles, wonders, and signs which God had done in their midst. And Luke said, as you yourselves also know. They knew exactly who the Christ was. And so when Peter, that is, God's spokesman on this occasion, when he set forth the terms or the conditions of salvation, he's talking to people who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ based upon their belief that Jesus was the Christ. He said, you need to repent. Well, why? Because repentance means to change. You have to change how you're living. Were they convicted of sin? Yes. Were they told what to do? Absolutely. So what was it they needed? They needed the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. The cleansing power of the blood of Jesus does not result from belief only. Nor does it lead to, or nor is it, a result of repentance only. Or confession only. 
or baptism only. It takes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance of sin, confession, and then immersion or baptism into Christ for what reason? The remission of sins. Now look, if you would, at what Peter said. Let every one of you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In the name of Jesus Christ. What does that signify? It means by the authority of Jesus Christ. You folks need to repent and be baptized so that your sins can be washed away. Now look, that's what the New Testament teaches. Did Jesus have anything to say about baptism? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. He went on to say, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Now listen to him. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What the Lord is saying there is simply this. That by the authority of deity, by the authority of the Godhead, You're to go out to make disciples and baptize people. God the Father, the originating cause of salvation. In other words, He is the primitive cause. He was the architect. The Lord Jesus Christ was the agent by which that plan was consummated. He went to the cross on our behalf. The Holy Spirit was the revealing cause of salvation. Each and every member of the Godhead working in unison for the same purpose. Well, what was that? Salvation of the souls of people. So what Peter is saying is, based upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to repent and be baptized so your sins can be washed away. Now Jesus said, He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved. Now, here's what the denominational world teaches. They teach you believe, then you're saved, And then you're baptized. Now listen, if that's what occurred in your your quote-unquote conversion, that's not biblical. It's not biblical. No, the Bible says, He that believes, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved, number three. Now that's not about what the Lord said. That's exactly what the Lord said. It's called a quotation. He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved, number three. That's as plain as I can make it. So if you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, you put your faith in Him, and you came to understand that you were then saved, and then you were baptized, that is not biblical. And if that's the case, please listen very carefully. You are not a New Testament Christian. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want anybody to leave here misunderstanding what I'm saying. And there are a lot of folks in the religious world and some in churches of Christ, they think they obeyed the gospel, but they have not. And why is that? Because they did not follow God's plan of salvation. It's just that plain. So when you're baptized into Christ, what do you enjoy? Salvation from sin, Mark 16, 16. You enjoy the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. 
You enjoy the washing away of sins. Acts 22, verse 16. Not before, but after you're baptized. You then contact that blood and God puts you in the body. What body? The church. And listen, please, very carefully. There is only one church. Can I back that up? Well, Paul said there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all, over all, and in you all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. All right. What then is the body? Paul said there's one body. Well, the one body is the church, Colossians 1.18. When Jesus talked to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, the northern end of Palestine, remember what he said? I will build my church. How many churches, Lord? One church. Only one. And, who, and to whom does that church belong? To the Lord Jesus Christ. So why do I say these things? Because it might be the case that you haven't obeyed the gospel. And I don't want you to leave here today thinking that you're a child of God when in fact you are not. I don't say that ugly. Don't mean to be caustic. But somebody needs to tell you the truth. And why is that? Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. The only thing that will save you from sin is the truth of Almighty God. And the Bible says God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So the gospel of Christ, it has convicting power. It has converting power. It has cleansing power. And please don't leave here thinking that baptism and baptism alone is what will remedy your sin problem. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it takes faith, repentance, confession, and baptism to put you into Christ. And salvation is in Christ. Not only is it in Christ, it is in the church of Christ. And I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm talking about the church that Jesus purchased with His blood. Acts 20, verse 28. He only bought one church. There's only one church authorized by Almighty God to exist on planet Earth today, and that is His church. Somebody asked the question, you, do you mean then that I've got to be a member of the church of Christ to go to heaven? I want you to listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. The Bible says, He, that is Christ, is the Savior of the body. So what then is the body? The body's the church, Colossians 1.18, correct? Well, how many churches did the Lord Jesus buy? Only one. So if the church belongs to Christ, He bought it, He built it, it belongs to Him, shouldn't it wear His name? Wouldn't that stand to reason? Look, I don't want to be a member of any church that's not found in this book that we call the Bible. You mean to tell me I've got to be a member of the church to go to heaven? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Not what I said. It's what the Bible teaches. Now, look, if you want to argue about it, I'd say take it up with the Lord. The fact of the matter is, that's what the Bible teaches. And one of the reasons why there are a lot of folks in the world today that don't understand that is because we haven't preached it as plainly as we ought to. Again, we don't want to be caustic, arrogant, or anything like that, but we have to preach the truth, don't we?
There's another thought here very quickly. Let's talk about the consecrating power of the gospel. Once you become a Christian, listen, the Bible, the gospel, the gospel teaches you what to do to be saved, and it will teach you what to do to stay saved, won't it? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The Bible says in Acts 2, verse 42, they, that is those who were baptized into Christ, some 3,000 people, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That means in His teaching. Who is it that governs my life? Who is it that governs your life? Didn't, didn't Peter say that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ? So when you became a child of God, what you were saying is Jesus is going to be my Lord. He's going to be the one that reigns and rules in my life. Does He have the right to govern how I worship Him? Yes. Does He have the right to govern my work in the kingdom of God? Again, the answer is yes. Does He have the right to govern how I live on a daily basis? That is, is my will to be subjugated to His? Yes. So there's the consecrating power of the gospel. And then finally, I would say, but there is the comforting power of the gospel of Christ. Now drop down and look at verse 47 again. In verse 47, Luke said, And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Now here's what I want you to take from this. When you hear the gospel, when you read what the Bible has to say, you don't have to guess and wonder, okay, am I a child of God? Do I belong to the Lord? If you have done exactly what the Bible teaches, you have complied with God's law of pardon. Are you a Christian? You are, aren't you? And as a child of God, that means you are a child of God the Father. Wasn't it John who said, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons, the children of God? Now we talk about our royal heritage. Peter said, You're an elect race. He said, A holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. For whatever reason, there are a lot of people in our country that are enamored by royalty in England. Personally, I don't, I don't really understand it, but it is what it is. Well, let me tell you what. You want to talk about royalty? The king, the queen of England has nothing on a child of God. And you know why? Because you are a child of the living God. You are a part of God's holy nation. You belong to Him and the assurance, the comfort that we can derive in that is to know that when the Lord Jesus comes, we'll be a part of that saved body. Isn't that what Paul said, Ephesians 5, 23? He's the Savior of the body. So in closing, let me ask you this question. How powerful is the gospel? Remember, I remember reading years ago about a, about a preacher. And he said, you know, we ought to let God get His say in the matter. What I have to say is irrelevant. But what God says, that's paramount. That's what's important. And listen, one day I'm going to be standing before 
King Jesus. The Lord Jesus is going to hold me accountable for what I say and what I don't say. So one of the reasons that I want to be very plain and upfront is because the Lord's going to hold me accountable. And I don't want to stand before God one day and the Lord say to me, you had my word, but you didn't tell the people. I don't want that to happen. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to do what the Bible says? To put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away. That's the only way you can become a child of God. That's it. Period. Exclamation point. Whatever. And then you've got to be faithful until death. So you... Believe the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, repent of your sins. You're baptized into Christ, then you live a faithful life and you go home to be with God. If you're here today and your life's not what it ought to be and maybe you want to try to make things right this hour, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. We have the assurance that God will abundantly pardon. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love